episode 978, The Best of the Best, Part 6, The Communion Commotion. Remember this one? Uh, no. But I won one episode of the year. That's right. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Edison. I'm Ben DiVono. We're back. Ben, I so I listened to the um, end of the year listener appreciation jubilee to figure out which episodes yeah. were nominated and ultimately which one won. And there were three episodes in from this year, 2016, that really struck me. I loved staying classy with the classics. Yeah. I loved, I don't know if you remember, that. so that was Staying Classy with the Classics is episode 442. I don't know if you remember this episode, but episode 469 was called The Redemption of George Lucas. Do you remember doing that episode? No. It was you explained as a filmmaker how he thought his career was going to go and oh. what he always believed about himself, and then compare that to who he actually became. Oh, man. It was that an awesome episode. Really good. It was really great. Uh, and the one that won was, uh, I think it was around this time that we were doing a deep dive on the sacraments i believe yeah kind of a series well, i figured them. this was probably one of those yeah and so and ultimately this is the one people like the most so episode 444 the communion commotion here's what i wrote in this episode we examine communion we give an orv- overview of the different views as uh, one of the words is covered up here by the playhead so i can't tell you what it says there where they come from in terms of scriptural aspects but also as historical phenomenon and developments of tradition Wow. That's what we're about to get That's into. That's a jam-packed episode. I, know, I wish I knew what that covered-up word was. It sounds like it was a great sentence. So, uh, But as listeners know, when we do these uh, intros for time loops, I like to add a little extra flavor. Yeah, a little spice. And I had sent you a message uh, over Facebook this past week. Or was it a text message? I can't remember. But I, I, in my own Bible reading, I came across a passage. I wish I just had it right in front of me. But it was from Mark, I believe. Does that sound right to you? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, and at the end of the book, or of, is it Luke? I no, think it's I, the think, I just wrote. at the end of the book of Luke, Jesus is hanging out with the disciples, but it's one of those instances where they don't recognize him. It's post resurrection. Yeah, the Emmaus Road. So they don't re- uh, they don't actually recognize him until they all have communion together, and then the Bible says that's when their eyes are open to as to who he is. So I I sent you a message just asking, what do you think is the significance of the fact that it was communion that opened their eyes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously, I'm reading from a Catholic perspective, but to me, that that is a very, very strong evidence for the real presence. It's clearly linking the Eucharistic act to the presence of Christ, the real presence of Christ being physically there in the Eucharist. You're saying that the the uh, transubstantiation belief, yeah, that when you're, but okay, if I'm I'm fine with what you're saying, but why does it say that to you? Why does that show? Because that? that's what happens in the narrative. So if we, if but we why read, does that have to do with opening their eyes and like and having that, them see who he is? That's literally what the act of communion is. Is that, it, like in the Catholic sacrament, is that you you take the the elements and then you're transformed by that to see Jesus clearly, like to experience Christ in a meaningful way. Like that's literally what the sacrament of communion is. Okay, let me back up. I, maybe I didn't know that. So in, in Catholic theology or doctrine, uh, maybe theology, w- uh, they it's stated that the sacrament of communion is for seeing. Well, I don't want to say seeing. Like that's that's uh, probably begging the question a bit. But it's a, it's a true experience of Christ. And so like, we've talked about how the Gospels are theological narratives, meaning that, you know, obviously they're, they are just dis- – I fully affirm they're, they are – describing historical reality but they're also describing the theology of the primitive church 
primitive doesn't mean like you know bad. It means early, very right? early, yeah. The primitive church, and so the experience of the primitive church, like when you come to a passage like that, you're hearing about how did the primitive church experience communion. Clearly, communion is present there, and clearly, communion has the effect of the true experience of Christ's presence. Those are linked for the author of Luke, as well as for the authors of the other Gospels, mm-hmm. uh, in a profound way. I don't know how you could not read that as an argument. Well, I'm sure yeah, well, you, yeah. you could interpret it different well, ways, but it would be very difficult to overcome that interpretation of that as a, a the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Yeah, I'll just say from the Protestant point of view, from my personal point of view, I'm I'm coming across that part of Mark, and I'm just kind of struck as that's interesting. What does that mean? I don't have an explanation for it, but I didn't jump to it has something to do with real presence. I, I think I still, if I'm just being honest, I don't know if I totally see the connection on because real presence basically means that when you have the wine and you have the bread, it's spiritually transformed into the blood and body of Jesus that we're eating. Yeah. And so I guess I don't see... Uh, they we, don't you know don't, Jesus have to... is there until they take the communion elements. Right. Once they take the communion elements, they experience the real presence of Christ with them. They they recognize who he really yes. is. I mean, it might just be that we're coming from different points of view. I you know I I, I I'll have to think it through though. But listeners, I guess if you if you're not on board with what Ben's saying from the Catholic perspective, I think it is worth asking what does this mean. Yeah, I, I mean that would be my question then is what's the alternative explanation? I it feels like and I'm not trying to be snarky, but right. it feels like most evangelicals would say, well, that's just describing something that happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that's wholly unsatisfactory and inaccurate to how the Gospels are written. Well, and I know that in this episode, uh, I think a lot of times, I guess my, when I personally, I don't know, I'm not sure how to put this. When it comes to communion, I do probably cross the line a little bit past Protestantism, but not all the way over to Catholicism, where I do think there's something happening during communion that's more than just we're remembering. I feel like there is something spiritual i feel like there's some sort of empowering that happens from that i'm about to talk about that and i remember this yeah pretty clearly in the episode we're about the time loop so all that to say i'm i'm interested in what is what is this empowering doing that's making them see more clearly or see truth I, i'm not sure i don't know the answer but I, it would be kind of funny if we actually talk about this story in this episode although i don't remember doing that i, I don't recall either all right so let's do time travel music uh this is from February. This was released on February 24th, 2016. It's again episode 444. Ben, take it away. Episode 444 The Communion Commotion. Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiBono, and we are back. For you guys all like the theology episode, well, now you're getting another one. That's right. So, this has been on my mind for a while, and I'm glad to have Ben to be able to talk through this with. Uh, I just want to get to the bottom of communion. What's going on here? Right. What What is this whole communion kerfuffle? Right, right. Which was almost the title of this episode. Spelled with a C, of course. Well, I would have had to spell it correctly. Oh, I'm sorry. Can't, can't um, break the rules. Just in case we have any new listeners, this will be important for context. Uh, ben is coming from the Catholic perspective. Right, but um, I used to be evangelical. Right, and I'm coming from a Protestant evangelical perspective. 
But I think in some ways, my viewpoints might uh, be more borderline Catholic in this. You're feeling a little Catholic today. Yeah, so Ben, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to be discussing? Well, they probably already figured it out based on the number of times we said communion in the first two minutes, but uh, we are talking about what some people call communion, some people call the Eucharist, some people call the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it, we're here to talk about it. That's right, and I've thought for a long time, and Ben and I have talked about this for years, that there's something, I feel like, there's something that happens during communion that's more than just the typical remembrance that happens at a lot of churches. And so that's why I wanted to have Ben present his facts, his fun facts on communion. Right. And maybe we can try to get to the bottom of what exactly is going on during the whole sacrament. Yeah. So uh, essentially, in terms of material I prepared or whatever, I got to come at this in two ways because I want to be... Uh, fair and factual, but I'm also going to share my opinions on stuff, which is, as you said, I'm coming from a Catholic uh, perspective, so I'm all about the real presence, and we might even transubstantiate a little bit. Yeah, uh, we, that big word just basically means... Well, we'll get there. Oh, you're... you're we'll, we'll get there. Oh, you're not going to... Yeah, yeah, we'll get not there. Not spoiling it yet. Right. Uh, you know, and, and is it required to believe in transubstantiation to be a Catholic? All that fun stuff, but... As I was thinking about this, Matt, and, the, and I sent this to you earlier, I, I feel like when it comes to discussions of different views on communion, you can really break it down into six categories where Christians might might not disagree, mm-hmm. okay? What is it? What does it do, if anything? Who can take it? Who can give it? How often should it be given? And what should we use? Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay, good. Right? Some of those obviously more major than others. In fact, probably the the most important one being what is it Mm -hmm. uh, is where the majority of the disagreement has taken place. For me, the most important question and the reason I want to have this conversation is what does it do? That's important to me. Well, and and those two are not the same, but they are closely related, Mm -hmm. I think. Right? Depending on what you think communion is... Uh, what it does is going to be different. Hey, we should also mention that by coincidence, when I brought this up to you, you had just happened to have just taught on this at your church. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So I teach confirmation at my church. I just survived our confirmation retreat this last week. That's weekend. right. Yeah. Twenty tenth graders. Wow. I was supervising, and uh, so I was up there with with a mutual friend of ours, Ben Kirkwald. Right. Yeah. Uh, who does the Game of Thrones reviews with me? Uh, on YouTube during... Game I didn't know you guys seasons. went to church together. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, our, our... He's not a pastor, because in, in Catholic circles, um, only the priest is a pastor, but essentially who would be the, the family pastor, or I think he's called the family director, or whatever okay. we call him. Uh, but he fills that role of doing like youth and stuff. And so we were all up there, but and then they, they both want to go to bed early, so I wound up staying up with the kids. I got them all in bed by midnight. Wow. Nice That's got to be an accomplishment. I didn't Ben other Ben attend Epic Life with us for a while? Yeah. And then he tra- he also transitioned into Catholicism. Yeah. Through your help? Or yes. how did that yeah, all yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. Do you want can you tell that story briefly or not right now? Uh well I Or mean, maybe we should have him on the show. We had like life groups and whatnot at uh at Epic Life. It was kinda like small groups or whatever. Yeah. And mine kept meeting even after I became Catholic. Uh, and as did the men's group that I started there, and Ben was involved in both of those. And so I think just over time, uh, various conversations, uh, he and his wife joined two years ago now. And then other Ben, the third Ben, ben is, is joining this year. 
Oh my gosh. So you... I'm good at converting Ben's. So, wow, because Ben Adams, another guy who we used to go to church with at Epic Life. Yeah. So he is converting to Catholicism as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What's your secret? If you it, t- For all the Catholic listeners out there, if they want to get people to, to come over to your side, what... Well, so far it seems to work to find people the same name as yourself. That seems to be the major secret. Okay. I don't know. I, I, in seriousness, I think it was just um, in those groups I talked about, especially in the, the men's group, I think we just had a very honest atmosphere to be able to discuss big ideas. That's. I just realized you mentioned that those two will be the two that will replace me when I leave. They're all Catholic. It's going to be a totally Catholic show when I leave. Yeah. Oh man. So, sci-fi Catholic coming twenty seventeen. Why Protestants suck in other news? Oh, oh I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. A nice ecumenical uh, spirit here, especially in this episode. Are you going to change the title? No. To, to like really give the Catholic emphasis, the well, Catholic sci-fi Christian. Yeah, Catholics only. <laughs> I just, <laughs> we'll, we'll brainstorm this off the air right all right so back to communion okay so i don't know where you want to start i, I think we almost have to start even though you know I, there's a part of me in terms of programming a show that wants to save the big question for last because it's kind of a grand finale but so much flows out of what it is i don't think you can answer those other questions without mm-hmm. answering that first yeah let's just do it so I, I've there's there's kind of a spectrum here. I know you you kind of gave remembrance and then uh, the real presence transubstantiation view as the two, but there, there's a bit more of a, a spectrum in terms of this. And I just want to apologize in advance. My like I said, my background is evangelical, so I'm really familiar with that view, kind of the Baptist remembrance view. I know a lot about that. I know the defense of it. I know where it comes from. And now I'm really familiar with the Catholic view. And I'm kind of familiar with the mainline Protestant view, and I'm kind of familiar like with the Eastern Orthodox view, but I might not get all those facts perfect. Mm-hmm. So if I screw it up, you send it an email, and we'll we'll make sure we we publish corrections or whatnot. <laughs> so anyway, which we're always <laughs> sure to do on this show, right? Exactly. We're, we're maybe during never, listener feedback, never. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. So the spectrum would be obviously on the one end. What is communion? What is the Eucharist? Uh, the thing you talked about, the probably the one we're both most familiar with in terms of experience, is the idea that communion is a remembrance. Now, to us, this seems really obvious given our backgrounds, uh, but it's interesting because, like, when you bring the when I bring this up or something, confirmation, and these kids who've been in the Catholic Church the whole time, it just it's it's like a bizarre thought, and mm-hmm. so that might be the case with some people in our audience. You know, when you sit and talk to a lifelong Catholic who's never really been in a Protestant service, and you say, well. Uh, yeah, some evangelicals, there's no Eucharist every week, and the whole liturgy of the word thing where the priest stands up and gives his homily, that lasts for 45 minutes instead of seven. You know, it's like, that's a real, what? And then, then church is over. You know, it's like this completely different, bizarre thing. So if you're not familiar with that view, essentially what it would say is that the bread and the wine, which I know we'll get to what elements we'll use, because more often people in this group are going to use grape juice, but for simplicity's sake, the bread and the wine, the elements of the, of, of the Eucharist, are simply that they are bread and wine and their purpose in taking them. We do it out of obedience to Christ. Uh, everybody acknowledges that. There's no dispute about that, that this is something Christ commands us to do. And Paul follows that up in Corinthians. Uh, but the purpose of them is to cause us to reflect on Christ's sacrifice and what that means in our lives. It might be an opportunity for uh, spiritual reflection and repentance. So in that sense, there could very well be spiritual things going on as a result of the Eucharist, but in and of itself, there is nothing supernatural 
happening in the Eucharist. The bread and wine are the bread and wine. Uh, Jesus is not present in any special way in that ceremony. Not saying he's not present. Just before evangelicals right, get Right, because that. he's yeah. everywhere. Exactly. But for example, Jesus is no more present in the Eucharist or communion than he is when your pastor's preaching the sermon. Right. Right. And and this is the viewpoint that I grew up with. And for some reason, and I don't know what changed in me, but over the maybe last five years, I feel like just treating it as a time to remember Jesus' sacrifice, while that is important, it feels like... No, it's not complete. Like there's something empty about just stopping there, right? I I don't know. I'm not. And again, I don't. I think you'll hear by the end of this episode. I don't necessarily have the answers. I'm trying to figure out, and I'm hoping this conversation with Ben can help me. Maybe just shed some light on things for me. Yeah, we'll get you in the RCIA progress process. <laughs> Good, thank you. No, actually, you know, people uh, might think listening to this episode, if they're not familiar with some of what I've talked about with conversion in the past, that. I arrived at the uh, my position on the Eucharist as a result of becoming Catholic, but actually the opposite is true. I came to the conclusion about the Eucharist first, and that was part of what helped drive my conversion. Well, both sacraments, when it comes to baptism and communion, those are the two big things that you started to change your viewpoints on. Right. And then that led to looking at what viewpoints lined up with where you were at theologically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah now I got seven sacraments, so how about that? Oh, so I only have two and you get seven? The Catholics have seven. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, so I get baptism and communion. What five additional do you get? Uh, reconciliation or confession. I There's, can confess. Oh, but it's not a sacrament. Okay. In fact, you don't even have any sacraments, and so we'll get to that. Okay. You have ordinances, uh, not the same thing. So confession. So, confession. Uh, matrimony. Getting married? Yeah. I can get married. Yeah, I am. But not, conf- not a sacrament. Okay. Uh, holy orders. I don't know what that is. Like becoming a priest or a deacon oh, okay. or something like that. Ordained. Ordained. Uh, confirmation. Right. I actually was confirmed in a Lutheran church growing up. Yeah, not a sacrament. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, last rites. Oh, like when I'm going to yeah. die. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I give it to people that aren't Catholic. That's true. Well, some of the sacraments can be given to non-Catholics. Uh, in fact... When I entered the Catholic Church, I didn't have to be rebaptized. Any baptism is valid, provided it's done with the Trinitarian formula. So I'm not allowed to use the word sacrament, huh? No. I bet you if you go to your church's website, they'll refer to ordinances, not sacraments. I think I tend to use that word. What does that mean? Ordinances? No, sacrament. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay. That's the next part. What does it do? Because that's the big division. All right, so go ahead. Okay, so remembrance, that's number one. And then within mainline Protestants, so thinking about... Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, and yes, I'm aware this, there's probably more nuance than these two camps I'm going to give, but breaking them down into two big views, you would have the view of sacramental union, which is what Lutherans believe. And I learned this week when I was researching this episode that Lutherans don't like the term consubstantiation, which is the one they would that's typically used. So when I was in theology classes, not with you, but during about the same time that you were also taking theology classes, I know you'll talk about transubstantiation in a minute. I don't remember exactly what the difference is, the, the distinction between that and consubstantiation. Right. Uh, I'll punt on that for the moment, okay. and we'll get back to that. But essentially what Lutherans would believe is that Christ is present in the Eucharistic celebration in a special way. 
In other words, if the remembrance view is that Christ is no more present in the Eucharist than he is during the sermon or the singing or whatever, Lutherans would believe that during the Eucharistic celebration, Christ is present in a special way, but not in the Eucharist itself. Uh, so maybe to answer your question, if transubstantiation, I'll explain more about what that means in a minute, uh, but if transubstantiation means that the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ, consubstantiation, which again is a term Lutherans don't like, uh, would mean that Christ is present alongside, con meaning with, um, the the elements. So he's so Christ is present uh, to a point greater than just the remembrance portion. Yes. Okay. He's present in a special way, but not in the elements themselves. Okay, got it. Okay, so that Lutherans call that sacramental union. Alongside of that, some Protestants believe in receptionism. Here, the idea is that Christ is special in a, pre- a special way, or present in a special way, and the Eucharist is effective to you in a special way if you receive it in faith. Okay, otherwise it's just bread and wine. So, in other words, you go to church. You believe, uh, you take it seriously and everything, you go up there in faith, you receive it, then Christ is special in a present way to you. If, however, uh, you bring your friend along who doesn't know anything about Christianity, he's like, oh, that looks yummy, I'm going to go up there and have a snack, it's just bread and wine to Okay. Him. Okay? And so th- those are kind of the big Protestant views. Um, and then when we get into the Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox view— both Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believe in the real presence of Christ. Now, in the case of the Eastern Orthodox, that's all they want to say. They, they're very careful to not go farther than that, as generally. Uh, there's sometimes where they've used terms like transubstantiation, but generally, Eastern Orthodox want to say that the, uh, the real presence of Christ is in the bread and the wine, they are changed into his real presence, but how and why we don't want to say more than that because it's a mystery and we can't say more than that. Catholics say that too, uh, and really, if you push us, that's closer to what Catholics actually believe. However, we also embrace the language of transubstantiation, which comes from Thomas Aquinas as a helpful way of explaining what that means. So in other words, we offer an explanation that we believe is valid. However, if the explanation was to fall apart, our view of the Eucharist would not fall apart. We would simply back off to what the Eastern Orthodox believe. So transubstantiation from Thomas Aquinas, uh, and this is why I'm hesitant to say that is the same as the Catholic view is because Thomas Aquinas isn't writing until, you know, 1200 years into the church. And so Mm -hmm. the theology of the real presence exists long before this language comes along. But the idea here is uh, Aquinas is writing from a philosophical point of view, or Aristotelian point of view, in which reality you can divide up, and again, this is a vast oversimplification, but into accident and substance, matter and substance, okay? So your accidents, as Matt Anderson, are your body, your hair color, you know, your unique personality traits, all of that stuff. Your substance is that of a human being. Okay, or of a human male, or however we want to break that down. In other words, it's your physical reality versus your metaphysical reality. Okay, I get it, but you said hair color for that would be an example of an accident. It's part of what makes you you, but it's also part of my physical body. Right. So that would be an accident, not okay. a substance. Your substance 
is that part of you that's not tied to your physical features. Uh, oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. In other words, the basic idea here in Aristotelian metaphysics is that if I chop off your leg, which would not be a kind thing to do, right. you are still Matt Anderson. I have not made two Matt Andersons, and I haven't made you less of a Matt Anderson. You're, you're just as much a human being as you were before I chopped off your okay. leg. Okay. So I can change your accidents. You, know, uh, you mentioned your hair color. You can go dye your hair blonde, purple, whatever, and you're still a human being. Your substance has not changed. Okay. Okay. So Catholics believe that in transubstantiation, um, the accidents, meaning the physical properties of the bread and wine, remain unchanged, but their metaphysical reality is changed to the body and blood of Christ. Okay? Okay. So they are literally Christ's body and blood, but not in the sense of, you know, we're not eating flesh and blood, right? So I'll try to repeat it back just to make sure I understand. So you're not, it didn't change the the bread, for example. It doesn't change to a piece of Jesus's body. Instead, it inherits the inner things about Jesus that make him who he is. Right. His godness or, you know, okay. Jesus, the substance of Jesus, uh, fully man, fully God. Uh, okay, got it is present in in the elements of the Eucharist. The other part of the Catholic view of the Eucharist that's important to note, because this gets a lot of confusion sometimes, is that at times in um, critiques of Catholicism, people will say incorrectly that Catholics believe that they are re-sacrificing Jesus at every Mass. Uh, that's actually not true. We we believe there's, you know, so one of the charges that's brought is, well, Jesus's death was sufficient for one. So why does Jesus need to be re-sacrificed at every Mass? And this confusion results from some of our language that we use during the Mass. We refer to it as the sacrifice of the Mass. When the priest is up there uh, saying the Eucharistic prayers, he says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours, blah, 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 you know, and, and so we use the language of sacrifice. And so it sounds like Catholics believe that not only is it Christ's literal body and blood, but that Christ is, in a sense, being re-sacrificed at every Mass. That's not true. And this might be a big argument to get you on board with Catholicism, because what we actually believe is that divine time travel is taking place in the Mass, ah. and that in a spiritual way, we are being joined with Christ's sacrifice in the year 32 AD, or whenever it was. And so we are literally joined with that in a spiritual sense. So in the Mass, we are spiritually joined to heaven, and we spiritually time travel, if you will, though um, I don't think the Catechism uses quite that <laughs> language, Uh back and are joined to that moment. So no, Christ is only sacrificed once, but we through the spiritual miracle of the mass are that moment is made present to us or more accurately we are made present to it. So would it be correct to say that by participating in communion you are therefore participating in Christ's sacrifice? Yes. Does this so I was talking to my friend Sam about this earlier today when I was telling him what we'd be discussing tonight and he brought up a, a verse that I had never thought of to relate to communion before, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I want to run it past you. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So would you say that that verse could be used in terms of this idea that you're participating in Christ's sacrifice during communion? Yeah, I hadn't considered that verse before. There's there's a ton of verses in the New Testament about uh, participation in Christ, and yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought that's a great verse to, uh, to yeah. make into more, kind of a communion verse. Right. Although uh, 
I haven't heard that before. Uh, N.T. Wright, of course, we, we've talked about his stuff mm-hmm. in the past, and his whole idea of justification really is the idea of spiritual participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, and that's part of what got me on the road to reconsidering uh, the Eucharist. And since I mentioned N.T. Wright, I should note that I didn't mention the Anglicans yet, uh, and that's partly because within the Anglican Church, you can probably find every view from real presence all the way down to it merely being a remembrance and everything in between. I may be getting ahead of myself here, and maybe you're going to cover this later, but when Sam and I were talking, we also brought up, or he brought up actually, Hebrews, uh, where it talked about Jesus as a great high priest. Yeah. And how, so we know that Jesus gave us his command to participate in the Last Supper or in communion. And so we were kind of talking through this idea that with Jesus being the high priest, is participating in communion then a way that, just like the Old Testament priest would do a sacrifice and then that would cover over, it would be on behalf of the people to kind of cover over their sins and, and take care of things in terms of the law? Right. Does Does that sacrifice by Jesus cover over the old law and then now us participating in, the, in communion kind of is that a form of uh maybe uh sanctification in a sense oh yeah yeah we're gonna get to that next actually okay okay because okay, that that's huge okay. uh and that so may just jump right jump right into that what does eucharist do so depending on how you answer this question what is it you're gonna land in one of two camps on what does it do? Now, there are degrees, of course, within these camps, but essentially you can divide it into evangelicals, Baptists, uh, Pentecostals. You know, most of those groups are going to say, and if you go on to just about any church website, you will see this language that the Eucharist is an ordinance, meaning it's simply something we do as an outward sign of the spiritual reality of being saved or whatever. So, I mean, you hear this all the time with baptism in a Protestant or an evangelical church. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the the theology of an ordinance as opposed to a uh, sacrament. So a sacrament means that the thing in question, whether it's baptism or uh, Eucharist or one of our other seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, that it's actually doing something in a spiritual way. So as Catholics, part of what we believe is that um, it is that the Eucharist is an essential form of grace for us, that Christ gives us grace. We believe, you know, in baptism that Christ frees the person who is being baptized from original sin. Is that buzzing? I hear a buzzing, but I'm not sure if it's going through to them. Well, yeah, I get what you're saying. I've thought that same thing, that there is something spiritual happening. There's some sort of, with communion and with baptism, there's some sort of spiritual transaction taking place. Right. And I, I kind of feel like that might be different than what the people at my church believe. Would yeah, you it say is. That? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, whether or not they believe, but that's the, that would be the official Maybe position of church. Maybe not every person, but right. yeah, the official position of my evangelical church. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's a very standard thing. So evangelical Baptists, they fall into the ordinance category. Everyone else falls into the sacrament category, okay, that there is real grace. Now, what that means could be different. Lutherans are going to use more the language of sanctification, uh, you know, this ongoing process where we Catholics believe that, you know, we don't believe in—we in, don't have any sense of, of um, 
the perseverance of the saints from mm-hmm. from Calvinism in ours. In other words, you can lose your salvation in Catholic theology, and so the Eucharist is a form of grace uh, coming to us in a unique way, right? Uh, can I stop you for a quick question? Uh, yeah. So, are you saying that you need to take communion to continue to be saved? Yes. Okay. So, could you continue to believe, or maybe this doesn't even make any sense within the Catholic Church, but could you continue to believe in Jesus and stop taking communion? Or would those two things butt up against each other so much that it doesn't even make sense? Uh, You could continue to believe in Jesus, not take communion, and uh, not call yourself a Catholic. You can't call yourself a Catholic if that's your belief. Okay. That's, uh, I mean, essentially, here's what Catholics believe when it comes to that. Because, and this is another thing that's mistaken, not to sidetrack too much on the issue of salvation. Uh, but Catholics don't hold to the opinion that if you're not a member of the Catholic Church and you're not taking weekly Eucharist and everything, that you're automatically going to hell. That's not what we believe. What we believe is that Jesus uh, gave us the sacraments and that that's what we're supposed to do. That's what it looks like. Okay. So, the uh, the most the, we'd call it maybe the ordinary way to be saved, if you will, would be to follow the teachings of the church that Christ set up from a Catholic perspective, to take Eucharist, to receive the sacraments and the grace, and, and go to confession and all this good stuff. Uh, however, we also acknowledge that uh, that doesn't mean Christ's grace isn't at work elsewhere in the church. Most of all, within the Protestant churches, uh, and then after that, within. Uh, you know, the Jewish community of Christ is at work in a special way as them being God's people, and then other people are sincerely pursuing God. You know, we believe God can work through all of that, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's just a free-for-all and that this stuff doesn't matter. It matters because this is what Christ gave us. And so we ought to work closer, as close to follow, you know, you should follow what he gave you as close as possible. And once you've been taught that and you've decided you believe it, I think you do have a unique responsibility of following it. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So sacrament and ordinance. So essentially, does the Eucharist actually do anything? Um, Yeah, so we covered that. Now, following on that, who can take the Eucharist? So that's a big question. In other words, do you fence the table or not? Uh, and well, let me give you kind of the range of this, and we could talk about some of the, the big scriptural passage that gets brought up here. So the positions would be anyone can take communion. You know, if you're sitting in the pew, it doesn't matter what you believe. If you want to come up, you come up. Okay. Any Christian can take communion. This was the church I where I was raised uh, anytime when they would give communion, which was usually once a month, they would say something to the effect of, we practice open communion here, we just, you know, anybody who does profess Jesus Christ as their Lord is welcome to come up. So in other words, they would not be in the anyone camp, but they would say, if you are a Christian, you're welcome to come up. Uh, The next one is probably quite a bit more rare, but would be any member of a church, right? So as long as you are in a member in good standing at your church, you are welcome to come up here. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then any member of the particular denomination in question, and this would be Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, some strains of Lutheran, uh, some other Protestants would hold here. The one that I wish was true for my church would be any member in good standing, I guess, if I had to pick one of those. Mm -hmm. Because in good standing means that they've already had a professed, they've professed their faith publicly, uh, we know they're Christians because I think this is a really big deal because yeah. it, you're going to read the passage, I'm sure, about 
the the consequences on right. if people give communion to people that aren't saved. So that's why I kind of uh, kind of side by that one. But my church actually does. We do it every Sunday, but open style. So they just pass the trays down the rows. Everybody takes if they want. And I feel like in that way, there's sort of a pressure to take it. Because, you know, you may look like, oh, why isn't Ben taking communion this week? Right. Something wrong with his faith? Or maybe, he, oh, he's not a Christian. So I think there's a pressure to take it. I wish that it wasn't like that. I wish they made it really clear because, as you're going to discuss, there's a big negative Yes. For pastors that give communion to people that are not saved. So the other nuance before I read that verse that I should have added in here is that many churches, Catholics, uh, Eastern Orthodox, I don't know if this is the case with Lutherans or not. It may very well be, but I'm not going to claim it for them, is that if you have not been to reconciliation for a long time, you should not take the Eucharist. If you are in a state of mortal sin, you should not take the Eucharist, right? And so the idea that even if you're a Catholic— uh, and frankly, even if you went to Euchre or to reconciliation yesterday, if there's a body in the trunk, you shouldn't take communion. Obviously, that's an extreme example to make a point, but you get mm-hmm. the idea. Okay, so this is in 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. Uh, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, and this is the verse that doesn't usually get added on, but I included that this is verse 30, and it's very interesting, because he says, For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So Paul's like, uh, there's actually real consequences here. Yeah. Is there also, maybe you have that in front of you, I that is that is the verse I was thinking of, but is there also a verse that talks about for leaders, church leaders, uh, there's a consequence to you if you give communion to somebody uh, that isn't a Christian? I don't think so, but I think you can logically infer this from here. In other words... Uh, The argument I came to on this back when I was thinking through all of this as a pastor is that if we give communion openly to anyone Mm -hmm. and that person, somebody comes forward and eats and drinks unworthily, then that's on me. That's how I feel. I mean, that's exactly what I think. Like the pastor or minister or whatever your church leader is, they have a responsibility uh, to make sure that they know who in their church is taking communion. Yeah. So even in the Catholic Church, like, um, you know, you can go and get in line, you go down to the cathedral or whatever. I mean, that, there's not like a show us your papers before you're, you're given the host. <laughs> but it's at that point, it's on me because yeah. the church has established that theology and that teaching. Yeah, and they make it clear. Yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. So, well, then maybe I'm wrong about my church because I think they do make it clear you should only take this if you're saved. You don't necessarily have to be a member. Right. So in that sense, you think that my church leaders are off the hook because – They've posted publicly where they stand. Yeah, I mean, but that's not the only issue involved in terms of where you land in this position. So some of it depends on how you answer the other two questions. And here's what I mean by that. And this is where um, I understand and I like the 
member of a church in good standing position, but I can't get on, on board with it. And this is something that comes up a lot in Catholic circles. Uh, uh, it's something our, our kids were asking about in um, the confirmation class. Why can't non-Catholics take communion? Mm-hmm. And part of the answer is what we just talked about with 1 Corinthians 11, and we read through that verse, and we talked about that. And so now, okay, we're kind of where you are with that. But the other thing is that if I say this is Christ's body and blood, and not all Christians believe that, and a Christian who doesn't believe that comes and takes the Eucharist, that's a problem, I think. Mm-hmm. Um in other words, if this is literally Christ's body and blood, and somebody is taking that without believing that, then I would consider that to be unworthily taking the elements. Hmm. Uh, and and it also, you know, the inverse holds too. Like if if you don't think it's Christ's body and blood, then that's not the case. Um, but I think that even if you're not a Catholic, and even if you're not on board with that theology, uh, hopefully. Uh, you can understand that argument that this is how seriously we take this. And if we're right about that, not saying we are, but if we are, then it is that serious of an issue. Yeah. I mean, if you think about a huge percentage of our audience is probably not Catholic. I mean, who knows? Right. Could be 50, 50. There's like five of us out there. (laughs) Uh, So basically you're saying in your belief system, everybody is taking communion. uh, Every Protestant is taking communion incorrectly and drinking judgment upon themselves no no that's not what i'm saying uh because going back to what i said a minute ago about how christ can work through other things i think that christ can work through a protestant eucharist in a special way Mm -hmm. i i think that part of what i would say needs to be qualified to eat and drink judgment on yourselves would be saying yeah i believe that but i'm going to go and do my own thing anyway I, i i think christ is very gracious to us in our disagreements as Christians, and I think Christ does work through the Protestant Eucharist, but I do believe, what I do believe is that it would be better if Protestants were taking Eucharist with this knowledge. You can do it now, or you can do it at the end of this episode, but knowing what you know about my beliefs, analyze me. Okay, well, let's get to the end then, because we'll, yeah. we'll go through it all. Uh, yeah, so I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that, because I, I don't I could see where somebody would find that very offensive, and and I don't want to be saying that. <laughs> okay. What I would say, though, is that— I don't want to be saying it, but I that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fine. No, no, no. No, that's not what Catholics believe. That's not what I believe, okay? But I do believe that this is a big enough deal where, from our perspective, because we believe that if we gave communion to somebody who doesn't, we would be eating mm-hmm. and drinking judgment okay. on ourselves. That's, that's more of what I'm saying. That's fair. Okay. And then the other part of that, too, is the reconciliation piece, where, okay, so there are Protestants who believe— uh, that this is literally the body and blood of Christ, or something close to it, right? Um, but they're not—they're not participating in the reconciliation uh, aspect. They're not dealing with their sins through the sacrament of confession. Okay, so I'd say that that's a problem. But then you still could say, well, why can't Eastern Orthodox people come to the Catholic Church, or vice versa? Especially since we recognize each other's Eucharist as wholly valid. Not just in the sense of that, yes, I believe Christ is working through this, but we believe Christ is literally present in uh, the the Eucharist of the Eastern Orthodox Church, that they, they have a valid Mass and all that stuff. Well, the last reason why we support closed communion is because communion is a sign of unity. And the reality is, and it's an unfortunate reality, that Christians are not united. 
and for us to say, go ahead and take communion anyway, is dishonest at some level. It is a sign of unity. And so what I told our kids when we were talking about this a few weeks ago is that should upset you when you think about it. It, it upsets me. Um, you know, it should, it should upset you. It should be something you don't like. That Christians are not united? That, well, like when you see like, oh, your Protestant uncle comes to Mass and he can't take Eucharist mm-hmm. and he feels left out and you feel bothered that he's in that position, that should bother you. But the response to that shouldn't be, oh, the church is so mean, it should change its teachings. It should be, no, we should all work harder to get united Can as you ex- one church. I just want you to explain a little bit more, just to dig deeper. It should bother you because... Because it's a sign of our disunity. But w- I see what you're saying, but there's no... At this point in church history, I don't think there's a tangible resolution to that disunity. Right. Well, that might be the case, but the point is we don't – it is dishonest to simply paper over that. Okay. Is more what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. So then who can give it? In other words, uh, how should this be done? How do we distribute communion? Okay. Uh, well, again, we see a very similar range here. Anyone can give it. You know, uh, any Christian can give it. Any pastor can give it, and any formerly ordained priest or pastor can give it. I just thought of something. I'm an usher at my church, so I'm often one of the people that passes this down the rows. Well, I mean, well, that's interesting because there's a bit of a distinction here, because even at the Catholic Church, we have lay people who are Eucharistic ministers who will, you know, uh, distribute the cup and the and. Uh, uh, the host. I did it this weekend okay. um, at our confirmation retreat. Okay, but the so the bigger issue with Catholics is who can. Well, there's actually a few divisions. Let me back up. So, Catholics only the priests can consecrate the bread and the wine. Is that like a blessing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the consecration will be where the transubstantiation takes place. Okay. Okay. Only the priests can can uh, consecrate the bread and the wine. A deacon could oversee a mass, well, not a mass, but a communion service where there isn't a consecration. So part of what happens is you can, it's a little confusing, but essentially in a Catholic mass, the bread and the wine are consecrated. All the wine must be consumed at the mass. Uh, the, The bread, the host can be reserved as consecrated host in what's called a tabernacle. Okay. If you ever walk into a Catholic sanctuary, you'll notice that somewhere in that sanctuary there is a little candle that is lit kind of by a fancy little box. And if that candle is lit, it means that there is consecrated host inside of the tabernacle, which okay. is that box. Okay, so a deacon could take the consecrated host out of that tabernacle and perform a communion service if there was no priest available. I don't think I've heard that term before, but you're using the word host to mean the bread and the wine, right? Or just the bread? Yeah. Both? Yeah. Okay. I think it would typically be more used for the the bread, but yeah, it's, it can be used for both. It's the host. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. The so host for Jesus. Yes. Because of the transubstantiation. Right. Got right. It. Okay. So then, um, but once they've been consecrated and and other lay people can participate as extraordinary uh, ministers of Holy Communion um, to help distribute them to the people. So you know, there's a few different levels. So I don't think that. Uh, you as an usher passing out the communion, you need to be too worried about okay. that. Yeah. Okay, so essentially the theology here is just what is the role between the priesthood and the laity? Is there any distinction between them? Uh, those 
who are in Baptist evangelical circles are going to say, no, there isn't, or at least not in any substantial way, or at least they're more on that end of the spectrum. That's why, uh, theoretically, anybody can give Eucharist to anyone else, right? Um, or, you know, they might have some minor restrictions on it, but typically not. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum are Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, who are going to say um, that, no, it do- there does need to be a priest present. Why? Is it because, well, you want to divide the church into the laity and the clerics? No, that's not it at all. But because we're following Jesus' example of how he appointed the 12 apostles to a special role, we believe in an apostolic succession. Uh, furthermore, we believe that the priest acts in persona Christi, which means as he is up there consecrating the, the bread and the wine, Christ is acting through him in a very special way that cannot be done at any other time by anyone else, but it takes an ordained priest or bishop, obviously. Um, I should make that clear. It's not like once you become a bishop, you're, you're banned from <laughs> doing the Eucharist, you know, but that Christ is acting through him in a special way. And that, again, is tied to your theology of what the Eucharist is. If it's just a remembrance, then there is absolutely no reason why nobody anybody should be barred from performing a eucharistic service if you're on the other end of the spectrum then absolutely this is something we have to take very seriously and there's good reasons for having a priesthood and then if you're somewhere in the middle you take one of the middle positions okay on this uh the next question is how often uh and catholics would say at least weekly at least weekly. Uh, and I'm pleased that a, more and more evangelical churches, it seems like, are coming around on this. Yeah. It's a good development. Right. Because, yeah, I think the common thing you'll see at churches these days, evangelical-wise, is weekly communion. But when I was growing up, it was once a month. Another church yeah. I went to was every two weeks. Right. So, And I'm I not quite sure well. what's driving that, uh, but I'm glad that it's being driven. You know, and the common argument against is that then it's not special anymore. And honestly, it's such, it's, I don't want to be mean. It's a terrible argument, in my opinion, uh, because it's like saying, oh, I'm only going to tell my wife I love you once a month because otherwise it's not special. Uh-huh. Uh, no. Uh, you know, and then if you take a sacramental view of the Eucharist, then that argument completely flies out the window because it's a means of grace coming to you. And surely nobody, no Christian in their right mind is going to say that we should only take receive God's grace once a month in our lives, because otherwise it's not special. Uh, Before you converted to Catholicism and we went to Epic Life Church together and you were one of the pastors there, I believe you had a hand in changing how, and maybe even how often communion happens. Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, when we first, the church first started, uh, I think we were really far on that. If we take it too often, it starts to lose its meaning because, you know, you're in the remembrance thing and everything. And so it became, gosh, we'll take it when we feel like we need it. Uh, And it was a long time in between uh, communions. And so after a while, we talked about this. And and this was before I even started kind of down the conversion road. Um, We realized, no, this is not a good idea because we're just never taking communion. So then it became, we've got to take it. You know, we're going to do, do the once a month thing. Okay. And then after I started to really question some of the things, not about becoming Catholic yet, but about what the Eucharist is, I started to push really hard for once a week. And that's mm-hmm. eventually what we landed on. Okay. Right. Um, so I think it's a positive development. I, 
I like I said, I don't quite understand why that development is taking place in evangelical circles, uh, but I'm all for it. Yeah, it's a good thing. I so we <laughs> sorry to keep going back to Epic Life. We met at a church or a uh, movie theater before we had our church home, and I have some memory of communion being served in movie buckets, popcorn buckets. Oh, that's offering. Oh, offering. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, our offering went out in popcorn buckets. That yeah, was, that was fun. Right, that's a good time. Communion would have been a little less. Uh, that that might have been a little less uh, good. Yeah, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then finally, the last question is then, what should we use? Uh, and this is the great grape juice versus wine debate. Uh. Uh, yeah, I, I I, think the, I know a lot of Christians would say it doesn't matter. Uh, I've even seen some churches throw keg parties and calling it communion. Which oh, is, wow. Uh, okay, that's terrible. Well, even, that's, that's even too far for Ben. Because, oh yeah, I mean you love beer as everybody knows. Yeah, but I love a lot of things. You know, it's, it doesn't mean that they should all. We should call them communion. Okay. Uh, you know the whole. Here's the thing: is that, and again, this is why we had to start with that. What is it question? Because everything ties back there. If communion is the body and blood of Christ, then we should be very careful about what we use. And that's why the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, other other churches that that believe things along that line, uh, carefully regulate what is used, and there are very careful rules as to what is and is not a valid host uh, for the Eucharist. Uh, to me, looking, I think that the whole development of using grape juice is a historical anachronism that comes from the attitudes about alcohol that developed in some circles of Protestantism. It doesn't make any sense. And and Christ, I just, I don't understand what the argument would be for for using grape juice, Uh, except people, if somebody says, well, it doesn't matter. And that's just what we've always used. Uh, And I would say it does matter because the Eucharist matters and we should treat it as reverently as possible. And if that's the case, we should be trying to be as close to at a minimum, as close to what, Christ actually used as possible. So would you consider an alternative like non-alcoholic wine as a better thing than grape juice? Or are you just sort of all in on it has to be wine? Well, I'm all in, but, you know. What about people that do have struggles with alcohol? and they? Well, in the Catholic Church, to take a valid Eucharist, you only have to take uh, the host of the bread. Oh, okay. So, so if you want to pass, you pass. So you're saying offer wine and bread if you have something against alcohol. Yeah. Don't, or just take bread. You know, if one sip is going to send you on a bender, um, just take the bread. I mean, that is a real thing that could happen. Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's, to me, and I'm uneducated in this, that seems, it seems like the better alternative is just take a replacement juice rather than s- skip half of what's happening. Because, I mean, even if you believe that, even if you believe in transubstantiation, Jesus can inhabit any host. It doesn't have to be well. He could, but wine. once once we take once we head down that road, it quickly becomes open season on what we can use. So then the then the keg party starts to make sense, right? Yes. Okay. I see where you're going with it. I I think I've always just had grape juice, so maybe it is just my upbringing. I've never felt like that's wrong. But I'm open to what you're saying. I, well, I'm not saying it's like you're committing a horrible sin. Right. But I do think if we say we want to take the Eucharist seriously, we believe something spiritual is going on here, 
then let's try and be as close as possible to what Christ actually used. And he was not drinking Welch's grape juice. Well, then would you also have something against wafers instead of a piece of bread? Well, we use unleavened bread in the Catholic Church. Yeah, I, I think that it's better to use an unleavened bread like what Jesus would have used. Oh, so, okay, well, that's pretty specific. Cause that, yes, the uh, Catholic Church is very specific. Because I've seen churches use ripped off pieces of loaves of, bre- loaves of bread. I've right. seen people use little crackers. Um, no, we go down to canon law would dictate how it should be made. And part of the reason for that is that it's if this thing is as special as we claim it is, then it's not okay to just use whatever. That we should use what the church has been using for hundreds of years. We should use the same thing. It's all, And since it's a sign of our unity, we should be using the same formula for coming up with this stuff as people in Africa are using, as people in uh, China are using. You know, it, it's a sign of our unity, and it's a sign of taking the Eucharist that seriously that we say, no, it should be this specific. It's not just all over the map. It's not, oh, crap, I forgot to buy wine. Anybody got some Kool-Aid? You know, it's it's not that. Let me ask you a question. Would you go as far as saying, for somebody like myself, I've let, let's say I've never had unleavened bread before. Let's right. say every communion I've ever taken has been some sort of cracker or regular bread. And I know for a fact I've never had wine at church. So right. I, so 100% of the communion I've taken... Or not in church. Exactly, right? Yeah. So 100% of the communion that I've taken has been grape juice. So would you go so far as to say you've actually never had communion? No, it goes back to what we were saying a second ago about like eat and drink judgment on ourselves. I think Christ can work through through uh, Protestant Eucharist. However, it depends on how strictly we want to define communion, because I think that the valid Eucharist, in my belief, a valid Eucharist requires a number of things, one of which is a priest standing there consecrating it. Uh, so even if you use those elements, you don't have that then in a sense, it's not a valid Eucharist. But at the same time, I think Christ does work through Protestant communions in a special way. I I don't know that I can nail it down more than that. Mm-hmm. I do know um, that I the times I've been to a Protestant service, uh, I don't take Eucharist there. Because for me, that's not a valid Eucharist for me to take as somebody who believes what the Catholic Church believes. I don't think that people who aren't there yet, who don't believe in the Catholic Church, who you know, I don't think they need to hear me saying, "Oh, your your communion's all wrong," or or it's no good. It's a no. But no, I think Christ does work through those Eucharists. But this thing matters a great deal, and I think it would be better if Protestants were in line with what the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches or the Catholic Church teaches on this with with those Eucharistic practices. Okay. I understand that. If you had said, from my perspective, you've never taken a legit communion, I wouldn't be offended because you're just speaking from how you see things. Well, we Catholics like to have things both ways, right? We're we're big fans of the both and. No, so it's like, yes, Christ works through your communion, but yes, also, in a sense, from a Catholic perspective, it's not where it should be. So don't worry about offending me. In, in, in a sense, would you say I've never taken communion? And I, I won't be offended if the answer is yes. In one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So we, uh, so you've done your six things. Okay. L- l- so l- so we go ask, down them and, and ask you- me the thing and I'll answer it. And then I want you to tell me what I am. 
theologically, okay. like right. where I land. So what is it? Uh, a spiritual transaction, whatever that means. Something happens spiritually. I don't think it gives me ongoing grace. Well, we'll get there. We're not to what oh, it does. We're sorry. to what it is. Uh, what is it? Yes. Remind me how what they possible. So it could be a remembrance. There's the sacramental oh, union sure. where Christ is present in the Eucharist, but not in the elements. Okay. Uh, it's a receptionism where Christ is only present if you truly believe, or there is that this is Christ's body and blood. Ah, oh, man, this is a tough one for me because I, I definitely am more than remembrance, but I don't know if I think I'm act. It's actually taking on the substance, but I do feel like it's there's some bigger thing happening so i wonder if i am sort of consubstantiation maybe i i guess i'm leaning right. i would if i had to lean towards one extreme or the other i'd lean towards transubstantiation well remember you can get on board with the eastern orthodox view which is what is that again uh, essentially that the real pres christ's real presence is in the eucharist but we're not going to say how we don't know how we don't know what that means okay i'll take that one i All mean right. I'm not, i know you're not trying to influence me i'm, I'm trying to just randomly pick one from what i think i believe right now yeah so. and it, just to pause on this one i mean john six is just huge here um and do, this is do you have it in front of you i do i'm not going to read the whole thing because it, it's quite long but yeah read it all right so this is jesus speaking he's speaking to the crowd he says very truly i tell you whoever believes has eternal life i am the bread of life your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and then they died, but the one who eats the bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And then here's one of the key parts. When many of the disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware of his disciples, that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Wow, it seems pretty uh, specific. I mean, it's there is something special there. And all I would say is that if evangelicals applied half the literalism to that passage as they do to Genesis 1, <laughs> they'd be more Catholic than Catholics on this point. You know what I'm saying? He says... And it's not, it wasn't in the part I read, but the other, you know, it goes on in John 6 to talk about how a bunch of people just get up and leave him because yeah. of this. And then you go, whoa, guys, it's just a cracker. I'm sorry. It's just, just a metaphor. No, it's like people don't get up and leave Jesus when he says, I am the door, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to walk through me to have eternal life. But when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life, like that's a big deal here. So it, okay. it's, so for today, I'm not saying this is my set belief, but for today, I'll pick Eastern Orthodox, All right. which is almost the Catholic viewpoint, but not quite. It is the Catholic viewpoint, but we like to explain it a little more. Okay. Next question. Uh, so what does it do? So here, first of all, you have the two camps, ordinance or sacrament. It's a 
sacrament. Okay. And then within sacrament, you'd have the range of that something spiritual is happening, sanctification uh, versus ongoing grace. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't think I agree with your point of view that it's an ongoing grace, but I, I mean, sometimes, and I don't know if this terminology is even correct, but some of the things I wrote down were it, it's some, there's some sort of empowering spiritually that happens. Yeah. Uh, maybe, and I don't know if I believe this, but maybe it renews your spirit in some way, or I think one that most, I think a lot of people could get on board with would be, it's uh, not that it's the filling, infilling of the Holy Spirit. I don't think I'm using that correctly, but right. that it fills you with the Holy Spirit's yeah, power, maybe like in grace. some way. Yeah, I guess I just keep going back to that empowering. Yeah, no, sounds, it sounds a lot like grace. No, it's different than grace because I feel like <laughs> grace is the thing that saves you. Right. So you, you would say it's not, not salvific. A, it's not salvific. Okay. It it's some sort of spiritual. Power? I don't. I I know the terminology I'm using isn't correct, but let's just say empowering. Can we get on board with yeah, that? Sanctifying. It's sanctifying, right? Maybe no, because sanctifying. I don't feel like you would need to. I I don't think you need to ever take communion to go to heaven. Okay. So not sanctifying. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus says that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. So that's where that verse is pretty yeah. hard hitting. It there. is hard hitting. I, I guess I'll have to think about it. But yeah. my first instinct is to say, you don't need to take it to just like I don't think you need to be baptized to go to heaven. But yeah, I'm oh, sure. I, I I would say you do. I mean, at least in the ordinary form. Of course, God's grace can extend beyond the means He gave us. So do you think under this, whereas I like to use the word sacrament, I actually fall more in line with an ordinance? No, I think you could still say you're in the sacrament camp. Okay. All right, next question. You got a little bit of ordinance mixed in. There. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'd say you're definitely in the sacrament camp. The second you say it's something more than a remembrance, you have to okay. jump into the sacrament camp. Okay. Okay. Who can take it? Now, this one I feel pretty strict on it. Have to be a Christian. Okay. And I'll stop there. I know we talked about the member thing, but the only reason I like that rule is because there's a little bit of oversight then. But really what it comes down to is I just think you have to be Christian. So You have to have a believing faith in Jesus. So what I would say then is... Um, if somebody, if it is Christ's body and blood, if it is the real presence, and somebody's taking it, even as a Christian who doesn't believe that, I would say that's a problem. You're saying not a problem. Yeah, I don't think we're you and I are on the same page in that area. N- not yet. Not Get yet. You there. All right, who can give it? Uh, I do feel a little laid back on this too. As long as the person taking it is a Christian, I don't feel like it has to be a priest or a church leader giving it. Okay, so, so that anybody can give it. Anybody can give it. All right. <laughs> okay, next question. Four, where we go at? back Four and or five? read that. No, I just kidding. Uh, number five. How often? Oh, I, I like what uh, you said about the Catholic Church, where once a week minimum. Yeah, I, I'd be for daily communion if that was what you're into. So, in a regular church structure, I feel like it almost has to happen every week. But if you want to take it again on Wednesday, if you're there, I mean, I'm all for communion. All right. But you would also say on the other end that if you never take it, you're okay. I think the the superior choice is to take it frequently. Right. But I don't, I do not think it saves you. So, but just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with never taking communion. <laughs> I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with okay. it. Okay. Okay. Good. I'm not good. saying there's nothing wrong with it, but if I had to say, I wouldn't. I just couldn't bring myself to say 
someone is not going to go to heaven because I've never taken communion. Well, that's not what I'm saying either, though, actually. Okay. Because uh, what I'm saying is that within the ordinary form that God has given us, that's what we are to follow, but that God's grace can save anyone, even if they've never taken communion. But it falls outside of the means of salvation that God has prescribed for his church. I do think, just like there's a responsibility as a Christian to be baptized, there's a responsibility to take communion. Okay. So I, th- I think we're close on that one. So we're close there, but I don't, th- even though I'm all for baptism, I'm all for communion, let's say for whatever reason, somebody chose to never do those two things, I wouldn't say they're, that automatically disqualifies them from eternity in heaven. Oh, neither would I. Okay. But I would say, and, and this is maybe where, where the difference is, I would say that within the means God has prescribed for his church, mm-hmm. it is that that is a requirement for salvation. I guess to continue on with this line of thinking, when we talk about a responsibility, I almost think if you are really, truly Christian in your heart, not just in like, I mean, when it comes to the definition and like the of having a saving faith in Jesus, believing in him, believing what he teaches, it seems like it would go against that very heart yeah. of the matter to not be baptized and not take communion. Yeah. So it's almost like... Uh, <laughs> Uh, misnomer is that right? Or yeah. it, it just uh, they they clash it. Uh, they don't right. seem to go together. But there's going to be extenuating circumstances where <laughs> everybody knows all the stories: thief on the cross, people that get saved sure. on a plane before it crashes. I mean, there. So, I guess what I'm saying, I'm saying you don't need necessarily need it in the same way. I would say that the person on the other side of the world who's never heard of Jesus isn't automatically going to hell. Okay, I'm saying it in that sense. Okay. I'm not sure if that's the sense you're saying it in or not. I'm not even sure myself. That's okay. okay. Let's go to the next question. All right. Then Then what should we use? You're a grape juice man. I am a, I'm a grape juice man through and through. <laughs> but you got me thinking. Uh, I'll just say yeah. you've, you've got me thinking on should I take what it is more seriously. Um, yeah. I mean, as some listeners may know, I don't drink and actually have never drank. Well, not yet. And so it would be a... It would be a if I was ever going to drink, I guess I'd do it for Jesus. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's not like you're getting pounded or anything. It's, right. It's, yeah. It's like you have a sip of wine. Right. It's No, I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it is actually hard for me to comprehend drinking wine. Well, your first, first Eucharist. Oh, uh, that's nasty. <laughs> Nobody likes it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not saying I'm necessarily against that line of thinking. I would just have to, for myself, think through it. So to answer tonight, I'll say it doesn't matter exactly what it is, but... You're totally right that if you start to go down that road, who who knows where you'll go? It could right. turn into anything. Like we yeah. could have been serving popcorn exactly. instead of bread back yeah. at that uh, movie theater. Actually, I, I was just thinking you have no tolerance whatsoever built up for alcohol. So if, if you did take uh, communion wine, you, you'd probably just be hammered. Like you'd be passed out there. Like, Best service <laughs> ever. <laughs> be party time. So all right. So answering those six questions, where do you see me landing? Uh, you're a little all over the map. Yeah, you're a little weird, all huh? over the map because I mean, let's see. You know, you came down pretty close to real presence. Like you're you're a cautious real presence. Yeah, I know that's true. And that I mean, that takes you like from that view alone, that would take you out of Protestantism altogether. I know, like you're gone. <laughs> I, know. I know it's crazy. Um, I I think that where you're most Protestant. It's probably, well, let's see. So going back down it, what does it do? I'd say you're pretty squarely in the Protestant camp there, but you're out of the evangelical camp altogether there. Because I believe 
that because of the consubstantiation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, just no, the no, second no. you say that something's really happening in a spiritual sense through the give, taking of the Eucharist. Oh, that's what you're yeah. yeah. The second you jump into the sacramental pool, uh, you are out of the Baptist evangelical world. Okay. Uh, who can take it? Uh, you're pretty Protestant there. Pretty yeah. Protestant. Just, I mean, I said Christian. I'm not saying everybody. Yeah. So there you're okay in the evangelical world. Thank goodness. I don't want my church to hear this podcast and then yeah. kick me out. Uh, who can give it? This is your. This is probably your most evangelical point. Anybody? This is the one where I would disagree with you the most. And that who can give it? Because I think that if you say it's the real presence, I don't think the anyone can give it position takes that seriously enough. Okay, that makes sense. So no, 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 not not no. trying to say you're wrong. Just something to think about. Yeah, maybe. definitely. Um, how often? Uh, well. I would say you're out of the evangelical world, but they all seem to be exiting right along with you. So three cheers for that. We're all on board. Uh, and what should we use? I don't think you know where you are quite on that. You're kind of thinking about I'm it. I'm thinking about that yeah, one. So You've got me thinking. If you're a grape juice man, you're in the evangelical world. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so I'd say you're kind of on the border between Protestant, mainline Protestant, evangelical. There. Yeah, I think I lost my chance because I had briefly went to a church that served both grape juice and wine and yeah. you could choose as you so instead of passing it to each row they have at the front and during worship music that is during the music portion uh everybody could go up and take what they wanted so you either take wine or juice and so there was my chance to dive into the whole wine thing yeah but uh i passed it up for the juice gosh well all right what happens yeah i think with that like I remember a couple of years ago, I, I got in a debate on a blog with some Protestants who were talking about how wonderful it is that they use Kool-Aid in their service. And to me, that just feels like, come on, if this is the Eucharist, this is Christ's body and blood. It was like, oh, oh, you know, whatever sound the Kool-Aid man makes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, it's like, come on. Shouldn't there be a little more reverence than that? You know, that's, that's kind of a, the base argument to me would be that... Uh, that's where it's really tough to get on board with with even grape juice. So it's like uh, if you can just drive over to the gas station and pick up communion. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's not quite right. Oh man! Well, this is an awesome talk, Ben. Thanks for all those notes. Do you have any closing thoughts, or should I hit that music? Um. Well, I just again, I hope I didn't defend anybody. I honestly wasn't trying to in this episode, and that's no. not true of every episode. <laughs> no, I think the reason it's going to be hard to be offended by this episode, I hope at least, is that we know going into this that. I mean, as a Protestant, I should say, as an evangelical Protestant, I know going into this, you have different viewpoints. So, right. of course, I mean, of course, you're going to disagree with some things I say because we do not, at our core, share the same beliefs. But it's fun to talk through. Oh, not yet. Huh? Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to talk through the differences. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to convert to Catholicism. I'm trying to analyze my own thoughts. And I knew that for this particular uh, area of theology, I do land not squarely with where the evangelical Protestant church lands. And so All I right. wanted to have that conversation. So you're leaving your church this week, right? <sighs> I think it sounds that way. Uh, they, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's not, and, and again, people, people said they wanted more theology episodes. So, so here, here you go. Is. If you don't like it, don't ask for it. No, we're just going to do whatever we want anyway. Yeah, so. Don't order a burger. If you want chicken. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Great closing thought. Well, everybody, uh, let us know your thoughts. Let us know where you land on this debate. If we change any of your viewpoints, uh, I'd be interested to hear about that. But for now, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiBono. And we have the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. All right, goodbye.
well. So uh, a few weeks ago when I was on vacation, uh, we went to church with my parents. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, please don't let them take communion. Please don't let they took communion. Uh, oh. is, this, is this okay for the air? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. were they mad that you didn't take it? No, no. We've had that, that uh, fight or, or discussion yeah. before. Okay. Yeah. But I was like, oh, it's going to be awkward. But I guess they're every weekers too. Oh, man. Everybody's in every week. Everybody's doing it. That's good. We're back, everybody. And it's so exciting. You just told me in between that you're becoming a Catholic. That's super exciting. Hit that music. Let's get out of here. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Wow. Big big announcement here at the end of this episode. That, that's not true. Don't worry, listeners. There are some people that are right. Don't worry, that, listeners. You know, there's some people that are like, no, not Matt, too. <laughs> we do get those emails. You get those emails. Uh, so, you know, I, I've been thinking we should uh, possibly do a follow up uh, to Surprise by Pope and have Surprise by Pope part four because I, I have not a lot, but I have a few follow up questions yeah, for people. Let's, and let's I've been, do it. and I have my own thing, my own questions, but it would kind of have to be not quite a feedback episode but it has to be from the listeners That's all right so listeners if you do want us to do surprise by pope part four send in your questions to feedback at the sci-fi i have a couple of my own and there have been a few that have come through so yeah i think we can make a short episode of that but for now that's all from here i'm matt anderson i'm ben DiBono. we're the sci-fi Goodbye. christians sign off